Hello, listeners. Happy belated Memorial Day. Happy beginning to summer. Happy coming off a three-day weekend and taking a long weekend this weekend. How are you doing, Gerard? I'm doing well. Uh, Today is my wife's birthday, so she's being pampered and feeling quite well. So she's good on her end. And over the weekend, uh, me and the, uh, the two younger ladies here just talked about the meaning of Memorial Day. Uh, we have relatives on both sides of our family who spent time in the military. So try to put some things in perspective and also had to remind her that even though um, the state of New York is often cited as the first place to have an official Memorial Day event, uh, actually following the end of the Civil War in Charleston, South Carolina, approximately 10,000 uh, formerly enslaved Africans, free people and others in the city got together to celebrate uh, their work in trying to bury some of the uh, Union soldiers who supported them. So it's not about which was first, but just to put in perspective, this has been a long tradition uh, across the races. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for that, Gerard. And, you know, I think it's also, I agree, it's really important. I think too often we um, we only think of Memorial Day as, you know, a day off at the beginning of summer. Um, we, too, celebrated by taking the kids here in Boston. They do a beautiful display planting a flag on Boston Common for every oh. person lost in war from the Revolutionary War on. Okay. Um, and, you know, my kids were processing that, that in in Massachusetts alone, I'm probably going to get this number wrong. So one of our producers or, um, or somebody who, who is listening can correct me, but 30, I think it was over well over 37,000. Oh my gosh, I'm probably going to get the number wrong and feel horribly. But my kids, needless to say, my kids were astounded to learn that they, the number given they thought was the number for the entire nation. And we had to explain to them, no, this is only for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which is also geographically mm. speaking and population wise, a very small state. So putting that in perspective for an adult is hard enough, but I think that, um, it was a somber moment, but a very, um, important way to reflect. And we also were able to share because we're all vaccinated to share a meal with Woo-hoo. my dear cousin who is a combat veteran. So, and, and we're happy that he was, that he is here with us. So it was a good weekend overall, a good weekend overall and happy birthday to Kimberly. I think here's the really important question, Gerard. Are you like cooking tonight? Are you showering her with dinner? Or are you going to do her a real favor and take her to a restaurant now that, now that, uh, it's a little bit safer. Yeah. In fact, um, we're both fully vaccinated as of yesterday. We're going to celebrate with her Thursday night. Um, tonight, for a host of reasons, for scheduling work and teaching, uh, won't work for her, but we'll take her out uh, on uh, on Thursday. The work just doesn't stop for the Robinsons, nope. especially for the especially for the one of you that you know works really hard. Exactly, <laughs> and who just turned twenty two. So yes, so she's got a lot of. First, she did twenty two already. Look at that. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, Gerard, we've got a couple of great stories of the, well, I always say great. And then I give like a really depressing story. So we've got a couple of depressing, but interesting stories of the week coming at you. Uh, maybe yours isn't quite so, but mine is dun, 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 about NAEP. It's about NAEP out of the 74 million. And the title is NAEP science scores down for fourth graders flat for older students are reading challenges to blame. So I feel like it's the same old song, like, uh, you know, with NAEP, it's usually like the headline is usually most scores down, some flat. And then there are a couple states that we have a nice story to tell. 
Um, this one, not so much. <laughs> so, um, you know, basically what this story is talking about is that um, for fourth graders, so scores across all age groups, in fact, are either flat or down in science from 2015. And that's the last time the test was given. And declines in performance are largely driven by students achieving at the lowest level. So remember, this is NAEP. This was given um, like before the pandemic. So we can't we can't blame learning loss on, on these results. Um, but the really troubling thing is as we parse these data, you know, sometimes you can see that scores are down or flat, but but those who um who have done who have performed in the bottom quartiles, the bottom percentiles on the test, um, we can see some improvements. That is not the case here. In fact, declines were driven by students with the lowest performance. So that's that's really, really tough. And this article raises some interesting questions about whether or not, you know, basically literacy is to blame. So uh, reading comprehension, I don't have to tell you, Gerard, it lies at the heart of everything. And if students aren't able to not only read, but comprehend what they're reading, then they can't, not only can they probably not attain the knowledge that they need in other subject areas, but they certainly can't demonstrate it. Um, so I think that these are really important questions. You may have been reading in other news that the National um, Assessment Governing Board is grappling with some very important questions over the NAEP reading test, which perhaps we'll get it, perhaps we can get into it another time. But um, on the whole, I think this article sheds light on a very important question about literacy. Um, and for me, these articles, as depressing as they are, always shed light on the importance of NAEP because it's a real pulse check on what's going on in the nation that we don't always get from our nation's criterion referenced state tests, as important as they are. So, so. yeah, I don't know. What do you think? What do you, what do you think about all of this? Is there hope? Or are we always going to see just flat and declining NAEP scores except in a few bright spots? I think we're going to see that uh, for a while because we've seen that for the past 20 years. Yes, there have been some uh, ups and downs. And yes, there's even growth for some low-income students in certain states. We've seen charter school students, for example, uh, who are poverty, poverty schools, Title I schools, but uh, who've seen gains. In situations like this, there are a few people who I'll go to. Uh, one would be, you know, Dr. Paul Peterson and uh, his institute, because usually they have a pretty good uh, take on, on what took place. I go to people like Eric Hanyashek, uh at Stanford uh, to see what he's got to say. Uh, I also go to, of course, the foundation uh, where you are, Fordham, AEI. So I make the rounds amongst some of our colleagues and just take a look and, and, and see what they have to say. You know, Mike Petrelli over the years has, you know, has made a really good point that when you disaggregate data, some of our students from middle-class home and, uh, homes and upper middle-class homes, in fact, are seeing some gains. And so we have to disaggregate. And yet for those of us uh, who tend to focus on low-income and working-class students, we see a lot of challenges. So, you know, I'm glad we have it. Uh, it goes back to the 1960s. It's known as the nation's report card. Uh, one of the few things, as you mentioned, that we can look at, look at across the board. But let's put this in perspective of Memorial Day. You know, if you are a young person, 17 to 24, and you want to go into one of the um, um, uh, military branches of the U.S., at least for the Army, you've got to take the uh, ASVAB test. Mm -hmm. And if you don't score well on that test, A, you can't, it's tougher to get in, I should say. But even if you actually make the cut score, the ability for you to get the type of job that will lead you to a career in the military that will give you the kind of income 
and family stability that you need is pretty important. And if you look at the African-American and Hispanic low-income scores, including for whites, uh, on that test, and you start looking at some of the test scores we have in reading and mathematics for our students, eighth grade, um, 10th grade, you know, if we don't fix this here, not only do we have an economic problem, but as a council on foreign relations said, you know, some years ago, this could really challenge our um, military well-being, not only in the U.S., but across the world. So this stuff matters. Um, I remain hopeful, but I don't expect a lot of confetti to be thrown uh, over the next decade. No. Oh, my goodness. No, I, I pessimistically agree with you on, on that one, my friend. So give us some better news. <laughs> well, this, I think, is a little better. This is from the state of Illinois. As you know, in 2017, uh, they passed a tax credit scholarship program. In fact, I was uh, excited to be able to submit an op-ed in 2017 just to talk about tax credits across the country and what they were doing. Well, lo and behold, uh, right now, the governor uh, at one point earlier on said he wanted to eliminate the program and then said, you know what, let's not eliminate it. But instead, he basically wants to lower the amount of uh, money that people who invest can write off. So, for example, right now, if you're a donor in Illinois, you get 75, uh, 75 cents in state tax breaks for every dollar you contribute to a scholarship fund. Under the governor's plan, he wants to scale that down to 40 cents on the dollar. Now, let's put in perspective, there are at least, as you know, as Empower Illinois said, there are at least 170,000 students who've applied for the scholarship. So there is a demand, uh, but there wasn't enough money to award roughly 22,000 scholarships across the board. There's a state cap at 100 million, but in 2020, uh, donations only reached 67.5 million dollars. Uh, as we know, there's always last minute political yes or no votes or moves or maneuvers that will take place. Uh, the deadline was yesterday. And so I'll take a look and see where things have gone. But one thing that Empower Illinois decided to do was to bring in one of the founding uh, moms, the founding mothers of this movement, mm. and that's Virginia Walden Ford, uh, yeah. who we both know, who's currently lives in in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, but she was one of my board members when I was president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options. She was a really powerful force in D.C. to help that city uh, adopt a uh, voucher program for low-income students. And she basically uh, made a case uh, to those who would listen uh, in the legislature on why this makes a difference. And she said something that's really important. She says a lot of things I think that are important, but here's one. She says, everyone has school choice except poor people. Now we've heard that before, but let's put that in perspective. The 2017 program is not the only um, school choice program in the state of Illinois. In fact, all we have to do is go back to uh, 1999 and 2000 when Illinois launched a tax credit for educational expense program. It helps families in public, private and homeschool situations basically um, write off some of their educational expenses for their education. Now, they were one of five states at the time that it passed. Listen, in 2016, there were 297,492 participating taxpayers in this program. And again, it's open to everyone. So the question is, is what Virginia Walden Ford saying right in a place like Illinois? It's already, you know, there's already a tax credit program or a tax expense program. 
and nearly 300,000 people have used it. It's been around uh, for 21 years. And yet when you have a program targeted toward low income, moderately income families, we somehow say maybe this is not right. Just food for thought. Yeah. No, it's it's incredible food for thought. And it's um, it's just a display of what we see over and over again, not only in American politics and American housing and American education. And I think she's absolutely right. And I think it's really important, too, for our listeners who might not like get super wonky with this stuff that, um, you know, a good way to essentially kill a tax credit program. One of the only things that's helping um lower income families access the schools that they want is to do things like say, well, yeah, we're going to lower the amount of credit that, that donors get in return for their donation, because that doesn't incentivize big gifts. It makes it harder to raise the money. You know, you can think about uh, an organization, a scholarship granting organization like Empower Illinois, having to tell um, two different siblings in one family, well, we've got enough for a scholarship for one of you, but not for the other one or something like that. It's, um, it's you, there. There are a lot of different ways to kill these programs. It it kills me, quite frankly, that Illinois is trying to get rid of this as other states are just expanding choice because mm-hmm. they are listening to the moment. I think this is incredibly tone deaf on the part of the governor, if I may. Um, but luckily, you know, one of the things that those who support this program have going for them is that. When you have choice and wealthy families know this, Gerard, which is why so many of them dig in (laughs) and try and prevent others from having it. When you have real choices, it's hard to take them away from parents. So I think part of um, part of the response that we're seeing here in Illinois and that we've seen, in fact, in other places across the country when programs like these exist and politicians try to take them away is that, you know, parents won't have it. So I'm going to hold out hope for this one. I hate when we as advocates have to go into protect mode in the states um, to and to, in fact, protect something that should be every child's right. Uh, But but here we are. So. And let me follow up on a quick point you just referenced and think about how much money the state of Illinois has received for the public school system in uh, pandemic relief, in whether Chicago. it was March of last year or December. I mean, millions and millions and millions oh, of dollars. And yet tell the private schools, we'll give you something. And in a situation like this, you want to lower it to 40 cents from 75 when you've just been washed in cash. Yeah. And the private schools aren't even getting the equitable services they were exactly. due. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so let the, and like, don't even, in, in the meantime, like, uh, uh, well, we'll save the conversation about some of Illinois' public schools for another day because there, there's a reason, folks, that families want out. <laughs> there's a reason that families are looking to their local Catholic schools and other schools. And I don't like to paint school choice as, you know, um, an escape valve from the public system. But some places that is that is the reason. And um, in many places in Illinois, unfortunately, that message is loud and clear. So. All right, Gerard. Wow. See, we can get a little exercised about this, but we'll see where they go. And maybe we'll have in the near future our friend Nathan Hoffman, formerly of Empower Illinois, or or somebody from Empower Illinois um, to talk to us about uh, about how this all turns out. Coming up after this, Gerard, we are going to be talking to somebody who was um, 
thinking about how we're learning now before we were learning the way we're learning now. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, she was thinking about, <laughs> she was thinking about online learning, blended learning, all of that good stuff before there was this thing called the global COVID-19 pandemic and we all had to hunker indoors. So we are going to be speaking with Heather Staker of Ready to Blend, and it should be quite an enlightening conversation right after this. Learning Curve listeners, today we've got with us Heather Staker, who is the founder and president of Ready to Blend. She is co-author of the Amazon bestseller, Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools, as well as the Blended Workbook and the popular report, How to Create Higher Performing, Happier Classrooms in Seven Moves, a playbook for teachers. Her latest publication is Developing a Student-Centered Workforce Through Micro-Credentials, published by the Christensen Institute. Heather has been a featured presenter in hundreds of radio, television, and live events worldwide and in legislative hearings in the United States as a spokesperson for student-centered learning. As the founder of Ready to Blend, Heather leads a team of 150 facilitators in the United States, Middle East, and South America who have been certified to deliver blended learning workshops to their teachers. Prior to this role, Heather was a senior research fellow for the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation and a strategy consultant for McKinsey & Company. She served for one year as a student member of the California State Board of Education during Governor Pete Wilson's administration, taught U.S. history as a teaching fellow at Harvard College, founded a co-op preschool, oh, I love co-op preschools, and marketed oil volet for Procter & Gamble. She holds a BA magna cum laude in government from Harvard University and an MBA with distinction from Harvard Business School. She is a mother of five children, as if all of that work was not enough. She is a mother of five children, and she lives in Austin, Texas. Heather Staker, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. I'm glad to join you today. Oh, we're so happy to have you. I mean, I actually kind of want to go back and talk about the five children with this, yeah, right? with this flourishing career as a mother of three. I thought that, I don't know, maybe once you get to, to three, four and five, they, you know, they start doing a little more work, <laughs> so, you know, but, but that is to be admired, a resume like this and a mother of five, but let's, we are here today to talk about your work. Um, and there's so much of it. So you know, we're really interested. You're an accomplished reformer. You have worked with the late Clay Christensen and Michael Horn, whom we had on this show on disruptive innovation and schooling. And many of our listeners are quite familiar with their work. Tell us about you, how you became interested in this work, um, specifically in the importance of technology in K-12 education, and about, um, about your books, uh, especially this latest one on micro-credentialing. Sure. So, and I will say that the motherhood part does bleed into my story as a re education reformer as well as it does for everyone. I, sure. but the, really there was like a very pronounced moment where it switched from, I'm studying this academically to, oh, wow. I can't yeah, imagine sending this. my child to a school that doesn't have some of these virtues in it because I was so enamored by some cutting edge campuses that I had toured. So it, there was like that moment where it became personal. And in fact, before that moment, I had paid for a coach to help me with my speaking. And I said, I feel like I stand and keynote and talk about this, but it's not really in my heart and I don't know what to do about it. And she didn't really have groundbreaking advice for me, but it was <laughs> when I saw a small, a micro school here in Austin called Acton Academy and saw yeah. the students 
just in this constructivist curriculum mixed with some more teacher-led instruction and just saw the way that this these children were just freed to explore. And I just, I, it just changed for me. So I will say that now I feel just truly like passionate about what's possible for our schools. And I hope that I'm able to articulate it because I sometimes feel like I'm not up to the task. I have such a strong conviction for what's possible. And yet it's hard to paint the picture and, and also move the policy levers in a way that really opens it up for everyone so that every family and every child can have those kinds of, of more modern and, and updated learning environments that are possible today, partly because of technology, but also partly because of our human capital technology, our know-how around how to, how to teach better and how to create better classrooms with more windows and fewer halogen lamps and just lots of things that can create much more beautiful and inspiring and happy environments for children than were impossible even when I was a child and certainly than were possible 75 years ago. I'm I'm really curious. So you mentioned Acton Academy. You mentioned seeing this great sort of student-centered learning and different opportunities for learning. You also mentioned teachers. So the the human capital component. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the teacher in the kinds of schools that you that inspire you, and and what that means for your work as somebody who develops teachers, who who helps teachers who perhaps are uh, I'm going to just go to limb here and air quotes, say traditionally trained to embrace some of these different ways of thinking about learning. I remember as a child, my mom would pack us up into our van and drive us to school like a week before, before the new year would start. And we would look at the class list to see which teacher we were assigned. And it was such a big deal to see which teacher we were assigned to because each teacher had a reputation. And then as I went on as a senior in high school, and you mentioned this in the introduction that I served as the student member on the California State Board of Education. And so for a, about a week each month, I lived in Sacramento by myself at a Hyatt hotel and attended State Board of Education meetings and had voting privileges on this board. And so it was a very unique opportunity. And then I also spent a lot of time traveling around the state and seeing so many schools in all sorts of environments, urban and rural. And I remember visiting a prison one time and seeing the students in their orange jumpsuits that were attending school. Wow. And just seeing so many different situations and thinking how textured it was, how, what a big standard deviation there was that some classrooms you walked in, you could just feel the joy and feel the enthusiasm. And so many others, you could just feel that there, it was, it was a dark place for those kids to be all day long. And so I learned early that there's a big standard deviation, not only from school to school, but from classroom to classroom. And what I think is possible now is for us to shoot for excellent classrooms and excellent learning experiences across the board. And it's not from, by re- casting the workforce and trying to hire new teachers, there are plenty of capable, talented, wonderful teachers in the system who have a real heart for students. But we need to be able to specialize. We need to be able to have some teachers who are really great at creating content and posting it online do that, while other teachers who are wonderful at the relationships focus on that. And just allow more diversity in general. And that's a common theme I want to emphasize throughout our, our conversation today is just we need a messy 
diverse, creative system where there's less regulation and more opportunity for innovations to blossom up and more opportunity for teachers to specialize in what they're really good at and have career paths and for classrooms to abound in this abundant way based on allowing the talent to arise that fits the needs of students the best. And we can talk about that more, but that's really where I saw it developing. You asked about the book Blended. I eventually went on and worked with the Clayton Christensen Institute and with Michael Horn, and we co-authored the book Blended, Using Disruptive Innovation to Improve Schools. And the concept behind that book is that schools can embrace a mix of online learning and digital learning combined with brick and mortar and in-person experiences for students to amplify what each modality has to offer. And so that was where that work ended up and how I took that early childhood experience of seeing schools all across the state of California and now have turned it into a more formal program for thinking through how do we as a nation innovate in ways that will lead to a more successful student and teaching experience. This is fantastic. And of course, I, I want to get to, I mean, you were thinking about blended learning and online learning and what that looks like for teachers and students and what the quality is before we all found ourselves in a situation at, where we were, where we were um, our kids were learning virtually at home. But before we get there, I want, I also want to ask you, you mentioned you, the, the book Blended, but you've also recently um, published on developing a student-centered workforce through micro-credentials. And I don't want to lose that thread because I think that a lot of our listening audience has probably heard the term micro-credentialing, but doesn't exactly understand um, what it is. Can you talk a little bit about about your work in, in student, in micro credentials and what they, what they mean and what they are and what this has to do with this new classroom and this new experience that you, um, that you talk about, that you teach about. Yes. So after Michael and I wrote the book blended, we spent a lot of time on the road talking to people, talking to schools about the concept of blended learning and how to form a strategic plan. We really, we published a workbook to help schools really think through the nuts and bolts of almost a business plan for how would they shift their instructional model to one that's more blended. And so it was a lot of strategy work. And then what I found after a couple of years of doing that, was that administrators often came to me and said, I feel like we have a pretty good vision at this point and a good strategic plan, but my teachers are lacking specific skill sets that they need to perform really excellently in their role in this master plan. And what can you do to help me? And I found that I didn't have a great answer. I thought for a while about creating some kind of a library on the Ready to Blend website. And then I realized there are just so many digital libraries out there and it didn't feel like that was what we needed was yet another library. And so I started looking at the world of lifelong learning and, and professional training more broadly and discovered micro-credentials, which are an alternative form of professional advancement for teachers where a teacher masters a discrete specific competency and shows evidence that they have mastered that competency. So for example, if they're evidencing that they are masterful at delivering small group instruction to ELA students in third grade, they might record videos of them doing that work and, and perhaps a teaching plan for what those small group sessions will look like and so forth. And they would upload that evidence and then 
a third party verifies that the teacher in fact has the purported competencies and the teacher gets credit for that. Whether the district gives them a salary advancement, they recognize it as an alternative form of a master's degree and what, or, or whatever the other ways are that the district incentivizes additional learning. Um, It's a form of professional advancement and professional development that's much more competency-based and personalized for the teachers, just as we would hope to have similar classroom setups for the students. So I was really enamored by that because it was exactly what I was hearing the market needed. As Mm -hmm. so many administrators said to me, I need to stack together these skills for one teacher and these skills for another teacher. And I don't feel like a workshop's really going to get me there. So what, what do you have to offer? So I kind of backed up, took the gas off of the workshops and certifying more workshop facilitators and focused my attention on developing micro-credentials to help teachers in their own time and pace certify that they have specific competencies that were important for their environment. That's that's fantastic. And also, um, as you point out, um, a, a means to keeping high quality teachers in the classroom if they, if they don't see, um, you know, if they don't have new learning experiences, often teachers leave because they're, they're, many of them are just learners by nature and want to keep going. Um, before I pass it over to our wonderful friend Gerard here, I have to ask you, uh, it would be remiss not to talk about uh, sort of the COVID moment. So as somebody who was looking at online learning and was talking about blended learning before the pandemic, and then we're here we are, you know, um, two, 2.7 million K to 12 students in the U S were doing, doing, <laughs> I don't know what we call it, but, um, had some sort of online schooling experience in 2019. Um, what do you, what did you see? What, where do you think we landed? What did we learn, especially for, for example, students with special educational needs? Many folks are saying, oh, these kids aren't being served by this yet. We see some States passing laws that are going to help them help specifically students with special educational needs, access more online experiences, telehealth experiences, et cetera. Um, What did you see come out of the pandemic for the way we learn now? Well, you know, before the pandemic, probably about a quarter of students in America were learning through digital curriculum for at least a portion of their school day. But obviously, as the pandemic hit, that number just blew through the roof. And students who were learning remotely, were the teachers were scrambling to provide them with lessons. And so oftentimes, we saw teachers trying to replicate their in-person instruction through con- simul-teaching or concurrent teaching to remote students as they tried to do live streaming. And so many of the best practices of online learning and particularly online distance learning weren't put into play, that we just, so many teachers scrambled to just provide something that we resorted to a lot of streaming of live lessons and simul teaching where the teacher was teaching live in person and remotely in many cases. And so it's easy to look at that and say, oh, we really messed that up. But I I have to think like, we really did what we could given the situation. And I think a lot of teachers deserve so much respect for the way that they scrambled. Here are the people who I think maybe should be called out for doing it particularly well. And the first, and this will be controversial, but the first is private schools. Private schools were 
a lot of parents just flocked to private schools. A survey that I saw by EdChoice said that 41% of parents now are more likely to prefer a private education for their children post-pandemic. And it's because private schools have more autonomy and flexibility. And so they were able to scramble to have more in-person instruction and to just adapt. And I think there is a lesson learned there for public schools that flexibility and deregulation to allow for local innovation and flexibility is something to value. And that every time we can script a local teacher or school into a certain standardized way, we lose something. And so it's just important to recognize another winner, I think, during the pandemic were the learning pods and homeschools. And we really saw this rise and digital curriculum in general. We saw this rise in appetite for digital curriculum with wraparound support. So students might attack their math through Khan Academy or Think Through Math or Dreambox or whichever their program was, and then have an in-person guide or tutor or parent or, or some other teacher who was able to connect with them, help them set their goals. And we really saw some value in that model. And then I think another winner potentially was parents. Now, parents obviously were also suffered a lot as they were trying to juggle school and work and having children home, and it was very hard. But I've heard a lot of parents tell me that one of the things that they won as a result of it was the transparency into what their children were experiencing at school. So as Zoom brought the classroom into the living room, parents looked over the shoulder of those kids and they heard and they saw, and that's a win because even in, well, in some cases they were able to just give a shout out to the teacher because the, uh, my third grader, his, her, his teacher was truly heroic, Miss Blackman. And I've told her multiple times that she just was so engaging and loving. I like wanted to listen to Zoom just so that I could hear her voice because she was such a great source of encouragement during the pandemic. Other teachers and other parents had different experiences where it was discouraging to them and they didn't feel like their children were really engaged or um, that they were on course for the best, living their best life through the schooling program they were in. And I think that that ultimately will be good, that with that newfound knowledge, we have more informed parents. And I think we also have a more, a broader appreciation for parents as partners and that schools were over rotating. I, I heard a principal one time saying, the minute these kids step on campus, they're my children. And I think we've over rotated towards feeling that way and under appreciated the fact that no, these are still the parents' children and that our parents need to feel like they're partners and that that's only in the best interest of the children and the teachers because it will help everyone have a more successful experience. So those were some of the winners, I would say, in the long term. Um, I do think, though, that we've learned several things about what we can do to tweak our schools to help them be more likely to win next time something comes around that causes us to pivot really quickly. And so if you'd like, we can talk about some of those ideas as well. Thank you. And Heather, I grew up in Los Angeles, and in 1992, I moved to Sacramento to participate in a state fellowship program when Governor Pete Wilson was still in office. So it's always good to hear someone uh, who knows something about Sacramento. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he was the one who appointed me. So we were there at the same time. 
So here's a question for you, and, and we're in total agreement. You've written a lot about how much of K-12 public education is still based upon a factory model and an agricultural calendar, uh, which is fundamentally outdated for how students learn and their interests, as you've just shared. You know, as we move out of the COVID-19 pandemic and back into, quote unquote, what will be, uh, I guess, what we can call regular school, what are some key lessons drawn from other countries about digital and blended learning that American policymakers and educators should be embracing? One observation I've made is that to remain competitive, it's vital that the United States continues to celebrate what Clayton Christensen calls disruptive innovation, innovations that really transform the model for how teaching and learning happen. And right now we're seeing a knee-jerk reaction in New Jersey and New York and potentially Texas to say, wow, we're glad the pandemic's over. Let's not do that again. No more remote learning. Let's quickly suck everyone back into in-person learning and get back to business as, as usual. And it's a mistake to do that. I've been working with the World Bank on a project for Saudi Arabia. And it's been interesting to see that in Saudi Arabia, many families, the majority, feel that the pandemic has been a benefit to their students educationally. They typically have larger families and the children haven't had the social emotional issues that come from isolation. In fact, they've been loved upon as they've spent more time at home in their communities. And then they have benefited from teachers having access to digital lessons of other teachers. So if a teacher felt weak in one lesson, she could pull a different lesson that a different teacher had taught and use that one. And so students said that the quality of instruction improved because they were served up better lessons. So I think these are all very interesting data points to show that in some countries, there has been some gains. We've seen hybrid and remote options in Estonia, Uruguay, Nigeria, Peru, Cambodia, all over the world. A lot of innovation to try to serve remote students. And the reason that this is important is that in many of those locations, it's been a benefit to those students in ways that they weren't served prior to the pandemic. So if America says, we are now going to quickly revert back to only in-person learning and what we used to do, then we're likely to just st be stuck in our incumbent system while the innovators are continuing to build their disruptive innovations and they'll get ahead of us because they'll continue to refine them, iron out all the things that are that we don't like about remote learning and about not just remote, but hybrid learning and different combinations of in-person learning. And They'll figure it out and they'll leapfrog us. And so just from a, the point of view of what America should do, it's important for us to incubate the variety of models that could be ours to celebrate in the future with summer schools and more private micro schools, more public-private partnerships. It's time for us to continue to be messy and creative and not tr not, not move forward based on fear and an effort to just go back to pre-pandemic mode. If we do that, we're forgetting that that's not what other countries are going to be doing. And we'll miss a key opportunity to build some flexibility into the system that we've gained this past year. And you provided some wonderful examples um, from the international stage. And it made me think about the fact that, you know, for the last several years, uh, some women in Southeast Asian countries have used handheld devices 
for their entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. And it wasn't per se set up for educational purposes for their children. But now that the pandemic has made us go, aha, maybe we can do things differently. There's a very interesting network of stories of entrepreneurial women uh, in those countries who are now saying, wait a minute, I would like to use the same device for my child's education. So uh, we'll, we'll see some interesting things bubble up. Here's my second question. You know, from your experience, what are some of the best K-12 blended learning curriculum materials and schools and even educators who are using them? And are there certain subjects like STEM that are better suited for digital or blended learning or maybe music or the arts? Yeah, well, first, this idea that it really all comes down to the curriculum. I think we need to first design a level higher than that at the student experience overall, that the curriculum that helps students become proficient in the content that then is assessed on state tests at the end of the year, that curriculum is important, but it's only one piece of what makes for the successful development of the whole child. And so what I think is really beautiful that's emerged during the pandemic is that in some places, schools have said, let's have a group experience where we have a group discussion and connect together, whether it's on Zoom or whether it's in person. And then we'll post independent work that students can do on their own through a learning management system or Google Classroom, or maybe it's even just some slides that the teacher sends out. But the beauty of that independent work is that students can complete it on their own. They can move forward as soon as they show that they're proficient in it. And oftentimes there's even variety in pathways. So the students can choose different ways of mastering that content. Also, some teachers have said, we're also going to do some group projects. And then finally, while the students are doing the group projects and the independent work, the teachers have shifted to meeting one-on-one with students. And these innovations in the role of the teacher are so critical. The teachers who have successfully delegated some of that instructional job to the LMS so that their time is freed up to meet one-on-one with students have discovered a paradigm shift that will serve our country so well going into the future. We have so many children who need that one-on-one mentoring, who need help learning to set goals and achieve them on their own, lifelong skills that will help them thrive in our knowledge economy. And so the teachers who have figured out how to shift into that elevated role for the teachers has have really done something magnificent that I think will be the future of learning. So that is, I think, what we want to get to is that kind of a paradigm where the teachers are doing one-on-one tutoring and coaching while the students are freed up to work independently and collaboratively on work that they can drive themselves. So then speaking to curriculum, the value of the curriculum is insofar as it unleashes each of those modalities. So when I think of curriculum, A lot of times we think about the independent work. What are the software programs that the students are using for math and for reading and for grammar and whatever the, or maybe it's to take an an e-course on economics or whatever it is. And so that certainly is an important question, but I don't want to give short attention to the other modalities that require good curriculum. We need good curriculum for the opening group discussion. So if the 
if the community is going to meet together before starting their independent and collaborative work and have some kind of a group discussion, do the teachers have content at the ready that allows them to posit an interesting Socratic question or allows them to ask a question that invites sharing so that students are really ready to connect with each other? And then when it comes to the collaborative projects, and I think this is where we're the very shortest on good curriculum, there's a dearth of content for collaborative project-based learning that allows students to step away from what they learned independently and often that was focused on a discrete skill like algebra two, and then connect with their peers on a real world problem driven with by a story. And those are the experiences. We do have the Buck Institute and PBL Works and Ted Dintersmith and some people who are curating those kinds of inter interdisciplinary multi-day projects. But we need such a broader repository of really engaging ways to teach true collaboration and critical thinking. But the place I really see our curriculum stepping up is, is for that independent work, the software that powers students learning independently and online. But again, that's only one piece of what would be, what would constitute a comprehensive student experience that needs to include collaborative work, one-on-one -on -one mentoring and group discussion. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. You provided some really good uh, food for thought moments, but more importantly, giving us a international view, but also talking about teachers and the multiple roles they can play in the learning process. In many ways, you've talked about teacher leaders, but also about unleashing the entrepreneurial spirit of educators, whether they're inside a classroom, blended learning or otherwise. So look forward to uh, reading more of your, your great work. And uh, again, it's always good to hear a voice from the Sacramento area. Thank you. Gerard, we got to end it with the tweet of the week, as we always do. This one from the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, also known as FAIR. And this is a Memorial Day tweet. Let us always remember the brave men and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice to protect our fundamental rights. And I got to tell you, Gerard, I don't know, the like American patriot in me, but even in times when I get um, agitated, disturbed, sad, upset about some of the heightened political rhetoric in this country, some of what's going on in this country that I don't personally agree with, um, it's always an excellent um, reminder to sit and reflect for a moment about all of the things that we do have <laughs> and how we need to continue to fight to protect our rights, um, just like those who, who gave their lives um, for us to have them. So I appreciate this tweet and, um, I hope that everybody had a very, um, reflective and, and pleasant Memorial day. And Gerard, next week, we're going to have with us a renowned guest, a great guest, as we always do. Um, I think this is somebody that, that you know and admire, and that is Dr. Glenn Lowry. He is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences in the Department of Economics at Brown University. should be a very interesting discussion. So until then, Gerard, happy birthday to Kimberly. I hope that you treat her in the manner that she deserves to be treated as the brilliant scholar, wonderful mother and wife that she is. And have a great week. Will do. Take care. Take care. Bye. <laughs>